Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, March the 1st, and it is the first day of National Women's History Month. And we want to thank everyone out there for joining in with us. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am one of the hosts of this wonderful rundown that we have. And uh, joining me again is Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. It is good to be here. It's also National Peanut Butter Lovers Day and National Pig Day and National Horse Protection Day. I don't know what those things have in common, but I do like peanut butter. I like peanut butter too, and maybe a little bit of bacon on the side, but we're going to keep an eye on the horses and make sure that they're safe. We are also going to have a nice little horse race of some rundown news that we've been collecting for the last week. There's been a lot of things that have been going on, and uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right in uh, with a little bit of story about one of our favorite venerable companies that would be IBM, because they are rebranding their storage offerings to be a little bit more direct in the naming convention. Instead of the previous Spectrum prefix, the line will now be known as IBM Storage. Uh, Big Blue had been using the Spectrum prefix ever since 2015, and the lineup has started to include more of the Red Hat storage offerings that they acquired uh, a while back. Those kind of came into the line last year, and uh, eagle-eyed viewers will notice that some of those offerings, such as the widely known Ceph, were never branded with the Spectrum monitor. And in the linked article that we have here, uh, Chris Malore uh, sussed out that quite a few things were suddenly being renamed, and then official word came down from IBM. Now, if you ask IBM directly, what they'll tell you is, is that this is part of a rebranding and realignment exercise to address their clients' needs. But Stephen, does this feel like a fresh coat of paint to you? Or is this kind of a thing that happened because of the integration of the Red Hat storage and maybe we're seeing a sea change in IBM storage overall? I wouldn't say a sea change. I mean, this is branding, right? This is marketing. And I'm gonna go on record to say, I like the Spectrum brand. I really kind of thought it was cool to have a brand that wasn't you know, IBM. And, and I liked the fact that it linked all the products together. I even liked the sort of um, interesting generic words that they used, like Spectrum Scale and Spectrum Protect. I felt like it was pretty good marketing. But I can totally see why, if you're IBM, you might not want your storage products to all have a completely unrelated brand associated with them. And frankly, a brand that might have even been becoming stronger than the IBM um, overall branding. Uh, and, and as you said, also with the integration of Red Hat and Ceph and the integration of all these other products that have been acquired, um, on the one hand, I, it, it made sense to, to brand them all the same, but on the other hand, um, maybe not brand them all the same in an implication that they are all similar. So, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Elytra for um, HPE, for example, um, you know, they do a similar thing, uh, but that's just for like storage systems. Whereas with IBM, just like everything related to storage was spectrum, including things like elastic storage, um, file cataloging, data protection, scale out, file system, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I can see kind of pros and cons here. Uh, I mean, overall, um, I think it's important for people to know that this rebranding is happening, but I don't really feel like there's a lot of um, like concerning news here. Okay, it's being rebranded. Gotcha. Let's see what the products can do. Tom, HPE announced that last week that they're jumping into the private 5G market with a splash. Uh, they acquired Athenet, a company that has been providing hardware for core mobile networks as well as private options for enterprises. Athenet has been in business for over 15 years and has 450 customers. The private 5G market is projected to be a billion dollar industry in just a few short years. 
HPE had previously been partnering with the private cellular pioneer Solona, and HPE announced that customers who had purchased Solona hardware through HPE Aruba would continue to be supported. Um, Tom, why did HPE go to with Athenet, and what does this mean for Solona? Well, I think that's interesting that they picked up Athenet. I, I think that the two biggest reasons were, uh, one, that it was an Italian company, so it allowed them to use some of that offshore cash that a lot of the companies have kind of floating around out there um, to make this. And, of course, uh, my favorite um, terms of the deal were not disclosed, which means that it wasn't material to HPE's bottom line. So infer that with what you will. The other thing is is that when you look at the fact that Athenet's been doing business for 15 years or more now, um, they've been selling into the core provider market for a long time. And then as CBRS came out, it was, um, you know, a little bit of a transition there to being able to offer private LTE and 5G offerings to enterprises who are trying to cover um, areas that are maybe a little bit more challenging for traditional Wi-Fi deployments. They need a little bit more coverage area. They need something outside of a, a traditional unlicensed spectrum. So I think that what, what they're trying to do with this Athenet acquisition is not only to augment their existing private LTE, private 5G offerings that they've been using through their partnership with Solana, but also to kind of get their way into that core carrier market. I think that that's something that a lot of companies are kind of eyeing now because there's a lot of specialized hardware that goes into that market that is slowly starting to migrate to more of a commodity type offering thanks to the work that's being done with you know things like 5G and Open RAN. Where this is a real value for HPE is all of that stuff is running on x86 servers. All of that stuff has become commoditized. All of these things are going to need to be consistently refreshed. Hmm. If only I had a service that offered me x86 compute and was frequently refreshed and could expand my capacity whenever I wanted. Oh, yeah. This makes a great tenant for GreenLake. That's that's the the one of the biggest plays here is that by offering this as an option for the core um, the core mobile provider market, you can effectively use them as an additional way to get GreenLake in there. Now, what does it mean for Solona ultimately? I don't know because they're still going to be supporting Solona's customers at least through the end of these existing contracts. And I think that the other thing is that that gives Solona a little bit more freedom to kind of look around and see which companies are wanting to make that leap into the CBRS market, or maybe they're trying to play catch up with companies that have an existing relationship already. I would hope that that means good things for Solona in the future, because like I said, they're kind of one of the pioneers of CBRS. As much as Athenet's been selling into the core mobile market for over a decade, as soon as CBRS was announced as a standard, Solona was right there. I mean, you can go back to the Mobility Field Day website and see the videos that we recorded with them where they're kind of talking about this. So I think that this has some potential to give Solona some negotiating power as far as creating new partnerships, but also if someone out there is looking to pick them up, um, this could end up being a, a valuable boon overall. So I'm kind of curious to see if, because it sounds like HPE is going to start trying to integrate um, Athenet into their GreenLake offerings, and GreenLake is all over the press release. So I think what we're ultimately going to see is that this is a stepping stone to get into the core mobile market and kind of develop that as an offering under their umbrella. Stephen, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, last week was the very first Edge Field Day. And uh, we had a great opportunity to hear from Scale Computing because they had a big announcement that went along with this uh, landmark event. They, they debuted their new zero-touch provisioning capability for Scale Fleet Manager. 
It enables IT departments to set up edge compute devices with a minimum of effort on the part of the installer. These devices can be pre-configured to phone home when they're cabled up to the infrastructure, and then you can hop into Fleet Manager, and your operations team can provision the devices to get them up and running and not need to be on site or not have to send out a truck. Um, this is a massive improvement compared to the way that most Edge devices have to be configured in you know the old times. But Stephen, since you were at Edge Field Day, you got a pretty close look at this technology. What did you think about it? Well, I think it's great, honestly. Um, Scale has always had great um, uh, infrastructure capabilities. I mean, the idea that they can take uh, small devices like Intel NUCs and make them into really um, full-featured uh, hyper-converged stack for running applications is just awesome. They have a great uh, ecosystem as well. And um, But one of the challenges with running those uh, sorts of things is that you know, at the edge and edge environments, especially far uh, edge environments, you really don't have staff at all. You have no, um, not even simple staff, not even like, okay, you know, type these commands kind of staff. It, no, no, no. You have somebody who can maybe take it out of a box and plug it in. And that's really what was needed in these edge environments. And that's what the zero touch provisioning option for Scale Fleet Manager is all about. They demonstrated this at Edge Field Day by literally handing out some Intel NUC nodes and having the delegates plug them in right there. Um, and in just a few minutes, they phoned home, they configured themselves, they were added to clusters, and they were basically ready to go. Uh, this is really, really cool because what Scale is doing here is they're bringing these advanced infrastructure capabilities to the edge and enabling uh, these sorts of reliable workloads to be run literally anywhere. Uh, and, and with Edge, as we saw at Edge Field Day, uh, that means essentially deploying little clusters of small servers in literally thousands of locations. So um, this was really a highlight of the Edge Field Day uh, event to have Scale make this announcement there. But it also fit very nicely in with some of the other companies that we saw present, including Scale Partners Avasa that, that are running containers on infrastructure like this and Mako Networks, which are doing a similar thing with ultra-reliable point-to-point uh, -point, uh, protected data links. So I, I urge you to check out the uh, Edge Field Day presentation from Scale, but also from some of these other companies, because you'll see that this is a, a really interesting new field, and we're pretty excited to have been part of it. Tom, uh, Brian Krebs had a big story yesterday that he, uh, when he broke the news that SIM swapping hacker groups had successfully penetrated T-Mobile's internal network, oh, I don't know, 100 times in 2022. Uh, the data from three telegram channels uh, frequented by criminals uh, was analyzed to determine when T-Mobile employees had successfully been phished and had their internal tools and accessed and uh, their access compromised. Uh, the data suggests that attackers were very active in the summer uh, with access beginning to trail off by the end of the year. Uh, Tom, this is a pretty big deal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the reason why is that you have to understand that the whole purpose of this was to trick other people into disclosing their information. So using SIM swapping as a way to defeat things like two-factor authentication to, oh, I don't know, steal some cryptocurrency, um, steal some uh, login information for somebody, uh, hack yourself a backdoor, like, it's a big deal. And, and Krebs goes into a lot of detail. In fact, I think it's funny because, you know, the, the most horrifying thing you can hear as a CISO is, uh, Brian Krebs is online too, and he's asking for a comment. Um, basically, what happened is, is that there's these Telegram channels that he did not name because he doesn't want them to go to ground. 
Um, and what they would do is they would offer these SIM swapping uh, services. But what would happen is, is that you would buy that service and then you'd have to wait until the access had been gained. And so basically what would happen is they scan these telegram channels and all they were looking for was a code phrase. TMO is up, meaning we now have access to the, the system. And they could be up for an hour. They could be up for a couple of days doing this. And as soon as they could, they pushed through as many of these changes as possible so that they could, you know, make the money. And as, as Krebs points out, you know, if this was just a scam, people would probably be crapping all over them and uh, the telegram channels would be empty and they'd have already moved around a few times. This appears to be something that's pretty legit. And so basically now what you've got is T-Mobile effectively having to say, yeah, you're kind of right. They were able to do that. And their statement is pretty generic and blank. You know, this is a big problem for everyone in the mobile industry. Yeah, you'd think, wouldn't you? But through a lot of research, you know, Krebs and a lot of the people in the community have basically said, you know, you can defeat this in about three minutes by requiring those folks to have some kind of a hardware token to complete the process to log into the tool. Because... This is just good old fashioned voice uh, social engineering. These people will get a phone call from somebody claiming to be from IT, that there is a problem with your system, and I just need you to go over here and log in with your T-Mobile login and everything will be fine. Yeah, does anybody else see the problem with this? I mean, I literally got a, a scammy looking text this morning that said, are you available, Stephen Foskett? And I'm like, one, that's not his number. Two, he doesn't text me. And three, he doesn't sign his text messages. But I'm also fairly well like connected in the industry and I'm pretty cynical to start with. Most of the people who work in the T-Mobile support group probably aren't as up on these kinds of things, especially when you have a live person doing this. And that's one of the things that Krebs goes into. The amount of effort that it takes to get this done you can pay somebody a fairly low amount of money, low being, you know, $100, and look at the amount of money that you're going to reap from that if you can just get tools access for an hour. So this is an enterprise. This is organized crime as much as anything else. And so I think that T-Mobile is going to have to, one, admit that this is a problem, and two, take some of those actions. And this is something for you guys out there who, if you're listening to this or if you're watching this, Enable two-factor authentication. Don't use SMS as your two-factor auth because as we can see with SIM swapping, doesn't take much to steal it. Use a hardware token like a YubiKey. Use a software platform like uh, Microsoft Authenticator, Google Authenticator, Duo, Authy, something. Have multiple factors of authentication to be able to log into a device. That way you know if someone's trying to scam you, even if you get the first part started, they can't complete it without the token for the second part. So that's my soapbox for today. Um, T-Mobile, do better. Um, everybody else out there, don't don't make T-Mobile mistake. You do better too. All right, Stephen. Uh, we're moving on to a story uh, regarding uh, SNEA because they're announcing that they are uh, they have a new way for memory to be utilized in devices. The Smart Data Accelerator Interface, or SDXI, is designed to help optimize memory to memory data movers. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, this kind of sounds like direct memory access. Well, then you'd probably be right. This is kind of a a uh, addition to what they've been working on there. The goal is really to help SNEA members build a few more integrations with CXL, which is a topic that you're very familiar with, as well as building on some of the disaggregated computing research that they've been doing. But um, Stephen, I was kind of curious, what do you think that SNEA is kind of hoping to accomplish with this new standard? 
Well, like all SNEA standards, and first off, let me just say, I'm a big fan of standardization, and I'm a big fan especially of the people that put all their work into the thankless task of trying to create standards for things. Um, you guys rock. Um, so SNEA has always tried to stay at the forefront of storage developments and tried to standardize what's happening out there so that there's uh, more consistency and more interoperability between vendors. And I think that that's critical here. So SDXI is actually quite a lot like some of the other things. You may have heard of GPU direct storage on NVIDIA, for example. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, DMA, and there's been a lot of chatter uh, as you've tuned in for the Utilizing CXL podcast. We've talked about the, the, the creation of, of disaggregated compute, but also of sort of many-to-many -many, uh, compute architectures where you would have uh, basically, um, uh, devices, accelerators that are full, um, have a com full compute stack and can basically access resources on their own without going through the host CPU in order to get there. This is really, really, really happening. And again, if you listen to Utilizing CXL, you'll hear every company in the industry is on board with this idea of a PCI Express fabric that would allow us to have cache-consistent links between devices, not just in terms of fan out from the CPU, but in terms of many-to-many -many, uh, architectures across a fabric. Well, if we're going to have that, it's going to be necessary not just to have memory access, but to have storage access direct from all of those things. You don't want to have to go back to that CPU and say, hey, I need you to traverse an entire storage stack in order to get me some blocks or files or objects. I need, you know, I, as, a, as an accelerator, it would be better for them to be able to, to have the ability to go out and do that work for themselves. To me, that's what's going on here, and that's what SNEA is trying to standardize. And I say more power to them because... Um, it's one thing to standardize sort of storage device to storage device kind of access. You know, you could say, well, you know, that's mostly going to be homogenous anyway, and so maybe we don't need open standards. But this is, is not going to be the kind of thing that's going to be homogenous. I mean, I, I can't really envision a situation where we would have sort of accelerators like GPUs or AI accelerators or something that were produced by the same companies that produce the storage stack. That's just not really going to be widespread. Instead, what we're going to have is a whole world of storage devices and a whole world of accelerators all wanting to talk to each other, and SDXI should enable that. So once again, um, way to go, guys. Way to try to standardize this. Uh, I, I, I love it. I'm glad you're doing it, and I'm glad we can give you a little bit of publicity here on The Rundown. Well, we've got a little bit of a bigger story that we wanted to take a closer look at, and you probably heard us talk a lot about it because we have covered a lot of news that's come out of our U.S. CHIPS Act. Um, it looks like the first monies are starting to be handed out to firms that are, you know, interested in picking them up. But of course, that doesn't mean that the first round of handouts uh, hasn't had its own special set of drama. Um, one of the big stories that we've linked here in, uh, in a Bloomberg article said that the uh, CHIPS Act is not designed to help struggling firms uh, make themselves right. Instead, it's focused on increasing national security. To that end, chip makers who agree to receive money from the CHIPS Act must agree to not expand um, in any capacity in China for the next decade. Now, in complete fairness, the statement from the U.S. government does not specifically call out China. It just says in any other place that's doing it that's adversarial to the U.S. government, read between the lines. I think we all know who they're really talking about. Then... Intel caused a little bit of a kerfuffle by stating that they believed that the U.S. federal government should prioritize U.S.-based companies for CHIPS Act funding, such as themselves. 
over Taiwanese company TSMC. The White House then clapped back by saying that they're going to distribute the funds as they see fit, provided that everybody meets the requirements, and that's that. Stephen, now that we're starting to see the CHIP Act actually come to fruition and people are starting to get that sweet, sweet cash, are we going to see some more arguments over the semantics of this bill? Hey, it's politics, man. Um, yeah, the CHIPS Act is um, a huge amount of money, um, though it's not actually huge by the standards of the semiconductor industry, but it's huge. It's big It's big bucks. I mean, you know, it's almost $40 billion that we're talking about here. Um, I am not at all surprised to see the government try to put conditions on the use of that money, especially because again and again, the government gives out money and businesses are going to use it the way they want. I mean, how many times, and I'm not throwing stones here gener- specifically, but how many times have companies gotten government bailout money and then used them for stock repurchases or executive compensation or just went through with a, a, um, an offshoring or a layoff? It happens all the time. And I think that maybe, maybe the government has finally gotten smart enough to say, you know, we should have, I don't know, standards and specifications around this money so that people don't do dumb stuff with it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. If the government is going to give out money, then the government gets to say a little bit about how that money is used. I also think that it was really, um, well, inappropriate for them to first say, you know, oh, hey, this is for any company, wink, wink, and then have most of it go to companies like Intel with it, which, within the U.S., and then for them to be shocked, shocked when companies like TSMC said, hey, we'll use that money, we'll build stuff in the U.S., and have uh, Intel be like, whoa, no, we want the money, not you. I mean, it's again, it's how things go, right? Um, if, if you want the money, then you got to play, play by the rules. And I'm glad to see this happening. I do wonder if this is going to undermine some of the success uh, or the, the perspectives for success of this money, because I can see these industries playing hardball. I could see some of the um, putative recipients of CHIPS Act money going back to the government and say, oh, well, if you're going to put strings on it, we're not going to do what you want to do, and we're not going to build this factory. How do you like them apples? And then see some pushback. In fact, I could see this becoming a huge battle as companies like you know that were set to benefit from CHIPS Act funding, like Ohio, where I am, or New York, or uh, New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona, you know, states like that, that we're going to to build new factories and, and so on with this CHIPS Act money. Um, I could see the, the companies going back and kind of putting them uh, up as hostages and basically saying, you know, and again, not throwing stones at anybody in particular, but I could see somebody say, you know, hey, we're not going to build that big fab that we promised if we have to abide by these rules. So, hey, senators, um, hey, governors, why don't you go put some political pressure on people to remove these restrictions? But that being said, I think that we have to have restrictions on this. One of the things that's interesting, Tom pointed out to me earlier, is that each of these articles, which is in three very different news sources, takes a different angle. So if you look at the uh, Bloomberg article, it's all about security, national security and and domestic security. If you look at the Washington Post, or I'm sorry, the, the New York Times article, then it's all about stock buybacks and things like that. If you look at the Ars article, it's about, uh, well, the, the lead is affordable child care. Again, it, it's a different angle for different audiences. And all of those things are part of this conversation. Tom, what do you think is going to happen with this? I think that you're going to get a lot of arguments. I think, just like you said, that, that people are going to look at this because, let's be fair, if there's one thing that I can count on any firm in the world doing, it's taking money that's being offered to them. 
And then once they've signed the deal, go, wait a minute, I actually have to follow the rules. I mean, we saw that during the, the beginning of the pandemic when the federal government at the time was like, hey, we're going to give you guys bailout funds to, uh, to, to offset this. What are you going to do with it? Like there was literally a meeting in the White House and all of the CEOs of the companies that were invited said, we're going to use it to buy back our stock to make our profits go up. And then they did exactly what they said they were going to do. Like, like, you know, trust a snake to be a snake kind of thing. That's why I think, like you said, it's important that they put these restrictions on there. And yeah, you know what? They're going to come back and they're going to go, well, we don't like the fact that we can't do stock buybacks with it. So we're not going to build that brand new facility or we're not going to do this or we're not going to do that. And so the federal government go, cool. So I get to go out and announce that you're not going to do the thing you said you're going to do because you wouldn't take the money with the restrictions that everyone in the world thinks is pretty reasonable. I mean, just go look into any of the comment sections of any of those articles and you'll see that most reasonable people are going to go, yeah, not only should that be a restriction on that bill, it should be a restriction on any bill that anybody gets for government funding. And I happen to agree with him because I don't know if you know this or not, for those of you who are under the age of 40, it used to be illegal to do this stuff, period. Companies were not allowed to buy back their own stock. End of story. But we've reached a point in our lives where everybody's like the fastest way to make a company look better on paper is to buy back the stuff that we use to fund the company in the first place. So I think that if you're going to take a um, handout, maybe not the right word, but maybe you're going to take some assistance from the U.S. federal government, it should come with strings. Okay, you don't want there to be any, you know, uh, restrictions on how it's being used. Cool, you have to pay us back for the money in five years, kind of like we did with the auto industry uh, during the, the recession in 2008, 2009. We'll give you a, a, a loan, but you're going to pay it all back. And here's the accelerated rate if you don't want restrictions on it. If you make it difficult for them to try to weasel out of using the money for the things that it's supposed to be used for, just like your teenagers, it turns out that when they have to follow the rules, They'll do the things they have to do. And that's basically where we're at is we have to start setting these things up that way. Or as a lot of people have pointed out, maybe we just shouldn't be giving money to a super profitable industry in the first place. Because let's be fair, it's not like things aren't going to be running on chips for a while. The problem is, is that what they're trying to do is spur investment here in the U.S. And I will applaud the fact that what they're trying to do is prevent a national security problem. Because you're right. Intel's books aren't looking too rosy right now. And we know that. And we've seen the moves that people like Pat Gelsinger are trying to make to at least make them profitable. TSMC, on the other hand, is making money hand over fist. But they have a bigger problem sitting a few hundred miles to the west that could have a huge impact. And I think that that's what the CHIPS Act is basically trying to say is <laughs> nobody is coming out of this smelling like a rose unless we get involved. But if we're going to get involved, we're going to do it our way. This is not a free-for-all to, you know, take your bonus money and go use it to buy a super yacht. You're actually going to use the money for what it's supposed to be used for. And, you know, Tom, I wouldn't go looking in the comments section of articles for the <laughs> considered opinions of normal people. But that Fair being enough. said, I would trust the considered opinions here on The Rundown. And I agree with most of what you said. And one thing that I want to call attention to as well, and this is something that kind of comes up in the R's article especially, is the um, labor force problem. So essentially, it's all well and good to build a fab in the U.S. It's all well and good to invest in, you know, Ohio or New Mexico or whatever. But um, what, who's going to run those things? Who's going to work in those buildings? And frankly, the U.S. has a big labor force problem right now in that we are really, you know, unemployment is, is record lows. Uh, people are, are demanding higher wages, uh, better benefits. And, and I don't blame them because there's a lot of jobs to go around. 
Um, if we need to, to, st to work, to, 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 to build these fabs, we need labor to work there. And one of the things that the administration is calling for is childcare and other forms of labor force support. I think that that's actually a really, really great idea because you know one of the areas that has bounced back or, or after the pandemic uh, was uh, basically male participation in the labor force. But one of the areas that didn't bounce back so well is, is women participating in the labor force. And, and they need assistance. Um, they need uh, ways to get back into the, into the labor force and um, to have somebody in the government say, look, we're not going to give you this money unless you have uh, ways to uh, basically pay people better, treat them better, and give them forms of assistance that are going to help them return to the labor force. I think that's great. I think that's a great idea. And, and like you said, yeah, the whole point of this was national security. But the other point of this was to build up uh, work and investment in the United States. And, and you know, I, I can't blame the American government for saying that. If you look at other countries, um, they are also going to be investing to help build up uh, production in their countries. In fact, that's why China, or should I say Ina Che, because like you say, they don't mention the, the country specifically. That's why, you know, the current dominant uh, player in the industry, it has so much is because they've dramatic, you know, the, the government has invested in this space just incredibly. And I think that that's what, what's going to happen in Germany. That's going to happen in Italy. It's going to, uh, what's going to happen in the U S and all of these countries are going to try to invest in order to bring jobs and, um, and, and work home as well as, uh, for national security reasons. And, and frankly, that is a national security reason. So yeah, that's kind of my take. And one other thing that I'd like to add here, and it's something that Greg Farrow over at Packet Pushers talks about a lot that I think is very important to underscore in this whole thing. If you're just going to take this money and use it to go buy, uh, build a building in Ohio or New York or Arizona or wherever you're going to buy it, you're going to have a big problem in about four years when you don't have anybody to work there. One of the reasons why TSMC is one of the largest, most profitable semiconductor manufacturers in the world has nothing to do with access to resources or location or anything else like that. It has to do with education. They built an industry around semiconductors, not just people working in fabs. They opened universities. They specialized in courses of study to be able to design the wafers and everything else that goes along with doing this. They literally created an industry that paid off years down the road. If you're just going to use this money to buy buildings and do capital improvements, then we're going to have some kind of monument to capital, late stage capitalism sitting in the middle of the desert where nobody can use it. But if you actually invest the money, if you, um, you know, sponsor these programs, if people at Intel use it at the University of Oregon to like create, you know, study groups that allow you to graduate with a, a degree in semiconductor design or something like that, and then employ those folks, like you said, to kind of keep that workforce thing going and provide the kinds of things that people need to be able to work at these things, not just free lunches and bus service from Mountain View every day, then what you're going to end up with is a thriving, healthy industry that provides a national security buffer that brings back the kind of dominance that American manufacturing enjoyed in years past. But if you're just going to use it to extract profits and your timeline isn't longer than the next quarter, then what we're going to end up with is a lot of wasted taxpayer dollars and a lot of shoulder shrugging. Well, you didn't tell me I had to do it that way. And well, we'll be right back where we started. And we'll be right back where we started at the rundown next week. But before we do that in the weeks ahead, we have a couple of things that you're definitely going to want to take a look at. Stephen, would you like to tell us a little bit more? 
Sure, Tom. Uh, first off, as I mentioned, Edge Field Day was last week, and we've now posted all the videos. So please do check out the Tech Field Day website to check out the videos from Edge Field Day, including, of course, Scale Computing, who we mentioned on this episode of The Rundown. Also, uh, next week is uh, Tech Field Day 27. Uh, that's going to be March 8th and 9th, and we've got a variety of different companies uh, presenting there, including uh, Men and Mice, uh, Memverge, uh, Kentic, and a special presentation from the CXL Consortium. So do tune in for that. And then later in March, the 22nd and 23rd, we've got Storage Field Day. So keep an eye on the Tech Field Day website to see some announcements about Storage Field Day as well. All right. And if you love the rundown as much as we do, remember that you can catch every new episode around 1230 Eastern time on Wednesdays. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash gestalt IT video. Uh, make sure you hit that little bell so that you're notified whenever we publish new episodes. You can also subscribe to us in your favorite podcast application of choice. Um, you can listen to us on the walk, on the bus, on the train, anywhere that you want to pop in a pair of headphones and pretend the world doesn't exist except for some sweet, sweet tech news. In a box um, with a fox in the rain on a train. Yes, exactly. Um, if you want to eat green eggs and ham today on National Pig Day, please feel free to do so. Um, I would leave off the side of peanut butter, though. And uh, if you have any news stories that you'd like us to cover on the rundown, please make sure you tweet at us. You can tweet at Gestalt IT, at S. Foskett, at Networking Nerd. Um, we love to see news stories. We'd love to kind of give you a little bit of credit for finding it. And, uh, you know, maybe we can, uh, we can have a little bit of fun with the news. We'll be back next week with more great stories. Um, I'll have a wonderful co-host to join me since Stephen will be out at Tech Field Day 27. But rest assured that the news will never sleep because uh, I usually don't. And uh, we will definitely have some more stuff for you. So until next week, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you soon. Thank you.